Welcome to Amicus Queriae, a podcast where we talk about legal issues affecting the LGBTQ community. My name is Jamie Francesca Rodriguez, and my pronouns are she, her. I'm an attorney in the Washington, D.C. office of the law firm Holland and Knight. You might say I serve as the putative general counsel for the Transformation Thursday podcast network. That being said, listening to this podcast does not form an attorney-client relationship. Remember, don't take legal advice from a podcast. And my name is Amy Stevens, and my pronouns are she, her. I am a mental health counselor in training and comedian here in Rochester, New York. Well, welcome this morning, Amy. I'm glad we're getting to record our first episode, first official episode of Amicus Queerae. How are you this morning? I'm doing pretty good. Uh, Busy morning so far. Um, We've had some fits and starts with this, trying to get this first official episode going, but here we are. Yay! Yay! For those of you in the listening audience, um, we do have what we're calling episode zero of Amicus Queerae, which... You know, about a month ago, we got together and talked about the Biden administration and the executive orders that specifically mentioned uh, equality for the LGBT community, which, you know, I was so happy to hear. So, you know, go back and check out episode zero if you haven't. But this is really the first um, episode of our podcast uh, where we're going to kind of go through the normal flow. But you know, Amy, I thought it would be helpful if we maybe gave a little bit about ourselves, kind of a little background about what brought each of us to this to this endeavor. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. Just a little bit of background on who we are as people, what brought us here, and what got us to actually deciding that we want to do a podcast together. So what do you want to know? <laughs> <laughs> well, let's, let's talk about how you became a lawyer, because this wasn't your first career. So- no, that... Yeah, that's true. So let's just say I'm a more experienced person coming to the uh, legal profession, which just means that I'm old, right? <laughs> You're not old. So out of undergrad, I had a aerospace engineering degree. I worked on satellite programs for the Air Force. I did that for like 12 years before I finally went to law school. And, you know, I graduated from law school in 2005. And the first thing I did was I did intellectual property litigation. So that was, I would say, mostly probably 85% patent litigation. Uh, So interpreting patents and arguing over uh, patent infringements and kind of all the associated uh, litigation aspects of, of, of that field. And I did that for about five years. And then... That sounds thrilling stuff. What's that? That just sounds like thrilling stuff. You know, it was actually kind of interesting. I mean, a lots of legal stuff is very geeky, you know, and so so you you know you kind of we like to nerd out about the details of any particular uh, legal area, and uh, but you know the litigation, the patent litigation, I found pretty interesting. I actually did some work on a uh, litigation of, about uh, the iPod back in the day when that was a real thing, and. Uh, I did, uh, one time I did a copyright thing over some video games, you know, that was kind of interesting. I, I worked on some some disputes over aircraft avionics. 
broadcasts from air, you know, satellite broadcasts received by aircraft, you know. So the subject matter can be interesting, but there's, you know, like any job, you dig down and there's some grunt work to do. Well, what jumps out at me right there is, you know, we've talked about this on podcasts that you've been on with us in Transformation Thursday and also but these little mundane things, as I'm hearing you talk about this, the iPod leads to the iPhone, satellite communications, but all these things touch our everyday lives. And I think as we walk through this podcast and we explain what this is all about, the legal issues we're going to talk about, especially as LGBTQ people, they really touch our lives. So it's it all correlates to everyday life in some in some way is what I'm hearing from you. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 that's kind of the interesting thing when you work on an interesting technology or something. But you know, after after about five years of doing IP litigation, I um I also have my pilot's license. I'm actually a commercial pilot and f- f- have a flight instructor rating. You know, and that was something that was kind of near and dear to my heart. And I started flying back in the 90s and I always kind of had this this sense that I wanted to do transportation related work and occasionally I did in the IP realm. You know, in uh, in around 2009-10 time frame during the you know, the last big economic upheaval, the firm I was working for closed uh, the office I was in. And so I had this you know, I'd already been thinking about switching to transportation and that was kind of the kick I needed. So um, it took me a little longer than I had wanted back then, but I ended up working at the National Transportation Safety Board. And I did that for six years, you know, working on accident investigations and all modes of transportation. And then four years ago, I came over to Holland and Knight, and now I advise companies who've had an accident or who are dealing with the company or who are involved in transportation regulatory matters. I've been doing a lot of work with autonomous vehicles and you know electric cars and those kind of things as as the regulations for those develop. So that's kind of what I that's what I do now. So I've kind of transitioned from intellectual property to transportation. You just mentioned transition, so um... yeah. <laughs> Imagine that. <laughs> So, you know, I am a uh, transgender woman. Just to talk about my transition a little bit, and and I'll talk about it, you know, as as you and I have discussed many times, you know, now that I've transitioned, I look back on my life and I can see there were, you know, many times when I was young, in some instances very young, even in childhood, where if I had been a little more self-aware, maybe I could have understood myself better back then. But if you know to really look at my transition like when it the the focus of it happened kind of started in 2018 in 2019 is when i really started you know coming out to people and kind of became my began my social transition in earnest and then in mid 2019 is when i came out to my firm and so i transitioned in my firm officially on july 8th 2019 but that had been a process that had been going on for about a month beforehand. I kind of call the July 4th holiday is kind of my Independence Day, if you will. That's when I really came out to the world. I um, published a, um, a Facebook post on July 4th, 2019. And, you know, 
just before I hit send, I was like, okay, about to jump off the diving board. And um, but I am so happy that I that I am. You know, one of the big things I've learned, and this really isn't a legal um, point; it's kind of a life learning point. Is as I've made myself more open and become more vulnerable, that vulnerability has been repaid ten times or more. I mean, so many people have come up to me and shared their experiences. And I really credit that to, you know, everybody's got their issues. We're all getting, working through life. We're all figuring ourselves out. And, you know, when you see someone else being vulnerable, it gives you confidence to be vulnerable. So that's, you know, what I'm really trying to do now with this podcast is over the past year, year and a half, I've been reading a lot of cases um, all over the country, any case mentioning the word transgender. And I have an automated um, search that, uh, you know, through Westlaw, a big legal database. So anytime a, a legal case comes up um, that mentions transgender in any way, I get a copy of it. And, you know, as I, as I read those cases, I kind of created this body of work. And there really are interesting issues uh, out there. There are, you know, last year, and we talked about this before, the, the Bostick decision, you know, holding that Title VII um, prohibits discrimination against gay and transgender people. You know, that's a big Supreme Court case. So, you know, clearly if there are Supreme Court cases, we will talk about those. But there are other, you know, appellate court cases, which are the kind of the law of the land for, for the circuits in which those decisions are made. And sometimes those circuit court decisions can influence other circuits. And so it's good to kind of see those issues coming up. Um, and sometimes you just, you read about a, you know, federal district court case where, you know, it kind of gives you something to watch. You know, there's there's a lot of situations where you, you see a decision, you wonder how that's going to play out. You know, will it be appealed? So there are a lot of issues and everything from employment to, immigration, healthcare, uh, education, kind of any area you can imagine, there's probably been some legal cases involving transgender people. There's a whole body of like criminal law cases and it's often prose defendant, prose um, inmate cases where, you know, someone's imprisoned and they're, you know, they feel they've been wronged in prison and they're trying to kind of improve their situation. And so they might bring suit against the prison system. And, you can, and, when, oh, you say, and you, when you say pro se, it just means that the defendant or the, the prisoners defending or not defending, representing themselves in the matter. Yeah, that's exactly. Pro se just means you're, um, someone doesn't have an attorney um, representing them in court. They're representing themselves. So... Transgender prisoners, for example, are often trying to get treatment for, could be gender dysphoria, they could be seeking um, hormones, uh, they might be asking for surgery. And there's a series of cases that talk about those issues and other things like, you know, how, how prisoners are treated, whether trans prisoners need to be housed with, according to their gender identity, should, if strip searches are something that prisoners have to undergo, you know, should trans prisoners be entitled to have, should trans women be entitled to have female guards conduct the strip searches, 
you know, trans men have men do those strip searches, you know, those kind of rules and how they apply to the trans community are important. So those are other areas that we'll talk about as well. Those are a lot of big things, I mean, but even from the world of prisons, those also play into how we treat trans people in society as well. Yeah, you know, I, I really do think as as I read those, as I started getting, you know, all these cases sent to me automatically and I started reading them, you know, I, I was seeing that, well, okay, maybe half of them are these prisoner cases. And initially I was like, I don't know that there's a lot in these cases that will be interesting. But the more I thought about it, I really thought, you know, one of the one of the measures uh, Dostoevsky has this saying about, you know, you can judge a culture, and I'm paraphrasing, paraphrasing here, you can judge a culture by how it treats its criminals, not its heroes. You know, not to use the word criminal, which sounds very judgmental, but I think a measure of the humanity of a society is wrapped up in how it treats the people in its prisons and, it, you know, the inmates in its prisons um, and jails. And I think there's something for us to learn about ourselves as a nation, about how we're treating prisoners in general and transgender, kind of the most vulnerable prisoners in many ways, um, specifically. Well, and I think also, you know, we can look at our country and say, we have a lot of work to do when it comes to our prison systems. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you. You know, you know, the United States probably imprisons a greater percentage of its population compared to almost any other country. And you know, there's definite calls for reform. And so I think there are, you know, we can look at what's happening on the legal front and how does that foretell what may happen or how does that inform what should happen in the future? Yeah, so we can look forward to that. So what do we want to talk about next, Jamie? Well, so I've kind of talked about myself. I'd like to talk about you a little bit, Amy. I want to hear, you know, what's your background? How did you you get into podcasting my kind of you are responsible for some of my entree into the podcast world so you know tell me a little bit about yourself i don't you know you know me i don't like to talk about myself that much <laughs> no never <laughs> okay twist my arm i'll go uh well let's see my my background um primarily for the last 15 years i've uh, been in insurance actually Auto home life insurance, you know, the big fun stuff in life that we all have to have and we all hate. But with, you know, like you, I'm a woman who happens to be transgender and went through a big change in my life when I came out. Uh, it's funny you mentioned July 8th. That's the day that I went full time in my insurance career. So you and I have that interesting coincidence of dates that I didn't actually put together until today. Oh, wow, that's funny. You know, there's similarities in our stories, as we've personally discussed, but there's some differences. I started coming out in 2017, started hormones almost a year and a half later in the summer of 2018, but then didn't go full time until a full year later, July of 2019 on the 8th, just like you. Oh, my God, that's amazing. <laughs> that's so funny. Yeah, I came back from the July 4th holiday as Amy. Awesome. My office. Awesome. So yeah, so I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. We hit that date exactly. And I remember leading up to that over that July 4th weekend, same thing. I was pretty much full time at home with the kids and the family, but still hadn't done it at work yet. You know, it's kind of funny. I, I actually consider my full time date 
to be July 3rd. And that's because I went on vacation over the July 4th weekend in 2019 up to my mother and sister live in Ithaca, New York. And so I drove up there on July 3rd. And so essentially from that point on, I've, um, I've been full-time just myself. You know, I'm interested in, I, I think one of the most stressful parts of me during to going through that transition was, you know, the work was actually, I had been transitioning socially for about six months, seven months before that. And, you know, and, and about nine months even prior to that was me figuring myself out and finally taking steps. But the big timing thing for me, the, the pacing function, if you will, was coming out to my son, who then was 16, and trying to do that in a way that was going to be the most cause the least disruption to, to his life. And so I did it after school ended that year, which mean, meant there was a period of time when I was, I was ready to launch to the world, but I hadn't quite done it yet. And I actually found that to be a really difficult time in my life. I'm wondering, what was your experience before you came out full, you know, be, before your July 8th date? Yeah, it was very similar to that because I had started hormones back in July of 2018. And I had actually told my oldest daughter in September of 2018 that I was gender fluid. So she's like, okay, dad's a little weird, but, you know, he's going to go back and forth and do their thing. So then in April, I actually came out, and that's April of 2019, I actually came out to the family as transgender. After I had done that, the following week at dinner, we're all sitting around the dinner table. And of course, by that, so I was pretty much outside of work by that time, presenting full time, but going to work, you know, presenting as a male, which was a whole different type of mind fuck. Oh, you just got us the explicit rating. Yay! <laughs> that didn't take long. So, but I'm sitting at the dinner table with my bra on and clothes, and, and my daughter looks over and just like, like shakes her head like, oh my gosh she has boobs and so that was just such a you know and i didn't address i saw it in the moment but i didn't address it at the time later that evening we were driving in the car and i look over at her i'm like hey i i saw your look at dinner and she's like you have boobs and so it was just a really i wish my kids would have been along with me on that journey a little bit longer um and then when my daughter graduated from high school in june of 2019 I actually off because she was because I came out to her in her senior year. So I actually for her high school graduation, I asked her how she wanted me to go to her graduation. Now she hadn't told anybody at school about me other than maybe one teacher. So I ended up that was the last time I wore a men's suit was in late June of 2019, about two weeks before I went full time. Well, here's a shout out to underboob and. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think if I'm going to mention underboob, I have to give a shout out to uh, Mary and Shelley at the Latter Day Lesbian podcast. I'll just mention that briefly. I I love those two, and um, well, and they're a big part of how we met. Yeah, exactly. You know, we both were guests on their podcast, and um, you know, Shelley has such an interesting story about you know her her growing up Mormon and. Mary is the sweetest person, and anyway, anyone who listens to that podcast will get the underboob joke eventually. <laughs> well, yeah, and and I'm an ex-Mormon as well, like 
you're like, Shelly, so yeah, that plays into the story too. And that'll probably tie in at some point because so much of religion ties into what's going on with the LGBTQ world, especially on the trans side right now. Exactly. I mean, gosh, the, um, you know, President Biden, thankfully, has come out supporting both the LGBTQ community, but also, you know, transgender rights. And it's great to have someone in the presidency who is a big supporter, but we're seeing a, a backlash, if you will, of conservatives in certain states. There's something like 16 or 18 states that have anti-trans legislation right now. That's something we're going to talk about in the course of the podcast and kind of some of the tropes that get thrown around by mostly Republican legislatures or well, that's, that's some, not... some quote libertarians in the, in the Senate. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and that dipshit from Georgia, it ta- you know, and you, you tackle this stuff from the, from the law side, but, you know, I saw a whole bunch of posts yesterday from, you know, other trans people just, they felt so beat down after this week. So this law stuff, the stuff that's going on in politics that gets in the news it takes a real mental health toll on people as well. So there's a direct correlation between these two things. And I see them and we and I talk about them in classes and as I prepare to get my first caseload this semester. Yeah, you know, I, th- I would like to hear a little bit more about how you decided to go into um, mental health counseling. And, you know, you're, as you said, you're a mental health counselor in training. I think, I think that's so important for those of us in the law to remember that our profession really does have profound impacts on people. The law can be a real force for good, but it can also be wielded in a way that is damaging to people. And how do you see that play out? Well, yeah, and I see that all the time. You know, like yesterday, you know, I had multiple friends that were posting, hey, I saw this in the news, I'm really distraught, you know, and I just offer them like, hey, if I can be here for you, nobody directly reached out to me. But a lot of times it's just knowing that there's somebody there available and having and knowing that somebody cares for you beyond yourself. And so that and you and I have talked about this personally as well. So, you know, that's just a huge part of mental health, knowing that we're cared and valued. And so when you see 30, 35% of the population just continually bash us, especially the trans community, it takes a toll. And I've heard numbers cited and I can get the citations if you really want them, but you know, 90% of the trans community suffers from, has had has suffered from suicide ideation with a 40% suicide attempt rate. Now, the Republican right or the super conservatives are going to say, well, look, you guys are all mentally ill and we need to, we need to help you. But if I bashed religion and your ideology the way you bashed my gender and my gender identity, it would take a toll on you too. It's a matter of the cart or the horse, the horse or the cart. I don't know which one comes first, but you know, my personal experience, you know, once I figured out who I was, now the hardest part of being transgender is just dealing with society. Yeah, that's so true. And there's, um, you know, I, I, I really value your your pers- perspective from the mental health side. You know, as we talk about these cases, the fact that you can kind of weigh in with a little bit more of that professional experience, I think is going to be really interesting. And so... You know, I look forward to us talking a lot more about about those aspects. But the key um, word's still in training. I know. Yeah, of <laughs> course. Of course. 
I just want to make sure, you know, cover all my bases because I'm pretty sure somebody from, you know, the school where I go to will stumble across this podcast. So I just want to make sure that, you know, the key word as we sit in February of 2021, it is mental health counselor and training. I I suspect this is the case, but I, you know, I'll just ask you is, have you guys talked about kind of the, um, once you become a mental health counselor, the the kind of advice that people will seek from you, just kind of random people. You know, I know on the legal side, probably every lawyer who's been practicing more than a few years has had a friend or a family member or both, you know, call them up and throw out some completely wild um, fact pattern about how they're being wronged by someone. And, you know, as, as lawyers, it's kind of a hazard of the profession. Um, uh, you know, I think most of us want to help and do things, but um, that we're, we also have to recognize our limitations. You know, we're not all experts in every area of the law. So if someone starts asking me about a bankruptcy or um, divorce proceedings, I really, that's not my area. <laughs> yeah. In fact, a few months ago, I went to get laser treatment on my face. The, la- the lady is super nice, super sweet. And I, I need to get back to her. You know, she's like, oh, what do you do for a living? You know, standard American society question, right? To get to right. the question, you know, what do you do? Oh, I'm a mental health counselor in training. I go to the, you know, school just, you know, down the road. That totally led into like a grief counseling session. She like just started spilling about like her dad passing away, her her uncle passing away and someone like and her brother recently passing away. Like, and I'm, and I'm I just want to get the hair zapped off my face. That's all I really wanted to do. And, you know, and this is still like my first semester. So I'm like, I don't know. We haven't had the grief side of it, you know, but it was just, I just sat there and listened. She's like, oh, and it, and I didn't really say much, but at the end of it, she was like, oh, I feel better. Thanks for letting me vent. And I'm like, okay, you know, and, and the, you know, and I, you bring up the word advice and I, I take the viewpoint on this, like, my interventions and the way that I approach counseling, I can't offer advice as much as support the client and what they want to accomplish. So that's the way I look at it. They have to, they have to want it more than I do. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense to me. Well, I'm glad we've able to share a little bit about our backgrounds with the audience here. Um, you know, why don't we talk a little bit about the podcast and how this is going to work? You know, what what's this podcast going to be like week in, week out? Or, or actually, let me step back. We're not signing up to a weekly podcast yet. <laughs> um, probably more like monthly to start. And, uh, and we'll see what kind of periodicity we want to uh, kind of settle into. You know, so are you okay if we, if we kind of transition to that? You know, I'm all for transitions. <laughs> yes, you are. Okay. <laughs> So, you know, we, we I did talk a little bit about how this podcast came about through, you know, even though I'm a transportation regulatory attorney, you know, since my transition, I've become more and more interested in uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion issues. You know, I've been doing some speaking on trans awareness in the workplace and organizing some diversity panels. And so I kind of see a lot of this as, you know, how can I have a positive impact on, on the community um, by providing, you know, information and awareness and background on on legal issues that affect really the whole LGBTQ community. Obviously, you and I will have have more more to say from personal experience on the trans community. Uh, we'll be looking at legal issues that that are, are kind of across the board. You know, and the way I see these 
episodes going, you know, this this initial episode's a little different because we talked about our background, but I think what the the general outline is going to be something like the following. You know, we'll we'll do a typical introduction, um, and what we're going to try and do is talk about some um, recent significant case, um, whether that's the Supreme Court, such as the Bostick decision. Um, you know, about Title VII and employment. Adams and Grimm were two important appellate court cases on Title IX and in the educational context and providing, you know, letting transgender kids go to the bathrooms, you know, according to their gender identity and, and what schools are, are required to do and, and, you know, what they should do. So those are big cases. We'll talk about those. Well, and also, there's also always news going on, too. I mean, this week, like you said, a.k.a. Republican bashing. We can always find a transphobe to kick somewhere. Right. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. You know, um, sometimes we're going to talk about his, the historical development of, of issues. And then, you know, I'm still getting the weekly two to five cases a week, you know, and occasionally we'll we'll bring up a recent case that's, you know, maybe there's just one little point that is interesting to the community, or maybe it's something to watch and let's see where this goes. I think there there's another aspect too that I want us to cover, and those are kind of like practical tips. So we'll, we'll start having some practical tips uh, discussions, and those could be things like name and gender changes. You know, every single state has a different process for name and gender changes, and you know, recently I was looking into the process here in, in the D.C. area, and it's different from Virginia, Maryland, and D.C. all have different requirements for getting a name and gender designation change. And I, I just found that to be kind of interesting. You know, Virginia is really the easiest. You pretty much just fill out a form and, and it happens. In Maryland, you have to fill out a form and also publish a notice to the world. And you know, that's a little bit more onerous, kind of one more requirement, adds some expense. In D.C., you actually have to make a filing with the court, you have to publish, and then you actually have to have a hearing before a judge. So, you know, just within the, the DMV uh, area, there are kind of three levels of process that you have to go through. You know, it would be great if, if, if that was a little more consistent across the country, but it just isn't, you know, and yep. it's it varies. What is it up in New York? Have you, you know, can you talk about that? It's more along the lines of the Maryland one. There is a publication requirement. However, you can get that waived. Mm -hmm. um, and so I actually had a lawyer that helped me through the process. And he actually, um, as part of the paperwork, I don't know if it's a motion, a brief or whatever, but he just included in there that, hey, Amy's transgender and for safety and for to maintain some privacy, you know, we just want to make sure that this we get this publication thing waived and it was waived. So and it actually went through like in about two weeks and I never had to appear. Yeah, that's great. And, you know, in many cases, you know, as we, once we get into the details of those, there are often uh, ways um, to get requirements like that waived. But, you know, to get a waiver, that's not something everyone knows about, and how to go about it is is, yep. is something it also. So well, those are the also, kind of. Oh, I was just gonna say sorry. It's just, good. but we can also get into the minefield of birth certificates too. Yeah, we'll talk <laughs> about that as well. And you know, unfortunately, I was born in a state that has kind of the most onerous requirements, uh, Louisiana, along with a few others. Um, for me to, to get my birth certificate changed, which is kind of the last 
document that I want to get that I need to get changed. Uh, I had to have actually gone through surgeries, you know, and luckily I, I'm at a point where I can now actually take the next step. But that's another thing that changed. Every state's a little bit different. Yep. So we can talk oh. about that. So, what? So, so you know, I think our outline is, uh, you know, we're going to talk about important cases. We're going to talk about current events. We're going to talk about recent cases that may not be as important, but that might, you know, predict the future or are interesting to track. And then we're going to talk about those practical tips. But there is kind of one important thing that we have, you know, we've talked about one overarching topic. And, you know, this is going to, when we get to this, I, I call it kind of the arcs of justice, if you will. And when, the point I'm making is that if you look at various uh, marginalized communities or oppressed communities and their fights for equal rights within the United States, there's these similar arcs. And it's like, you know, one group starts fighting for equal rights and, and you know, the kind of conservative nature of our country resists the changes, actively fights against the changes, argues against the changes, and then those same arguments and res that resistance and fighting gets reused every time a new group just wants to come out and be treated equally. And so I think these arcs of justice are, I think they're important because one, it's good to know the history and to see that these are the same kind of, the same arguments that are used against women's rights in the 1800s and early 1900s then get repurposed by people fighting against the the fight for racial equality in the in the in the fifties and forties fifties and sixties. You know those misogynistic arguments get reformulated into racist arguments or reused and repurposed by people who don't want to give the African American community equal rights. And so I think it, that's an important lesson. And then that flows into the fight for uh, gay rights, the LGBTQ community, and you, you once again, you see this resistance to gay rights, a resistance to gay marriage, and there's kind of an arc of how that plays out. And now I feel like trans rights are, that's the topic du jour, and we're making progress, but we're also fighting those same forces being confronted with many of the same arguments. So I think this arcs of justice storyline, it's going to take us four or five episodes to really do justice to the story itself. But I think it's so important. Yeah. And I, you know, and I, I just really wish, you know, coming at this from a comedian viewpoint, I really wish some of these people would just get new material. <laughs> I mean, come on. How many times can you recycle the same crap over and over? I mean, if you look at what people were saying about LGB community in the 80s and 90s about mental illness, about it not being right with God, you know, all these different things, it's similar stuff. Now, there is some little difference because, you know, what, you know, our opponents will say is like, oh, there's a biological component. Well, how do we define biology? How do we define science? And we can really get into the weeds of that, but it's... It's just the same argument. And so I would I would really like them to I would like them to sit down and write some new material. I, I really challenge them on the right to do that when it comes to trans rights. You know, 
get some new material. Please do it. Yeah, unfortunately, much of the underlying material is based on hatred or outright animosity. And, you know, the, the animus for the arguments hasn't really changed that much. We'll see. You know, I think a good example, I, I think another point of, of why these arcs are interesting is it really does show how long these changes take. You know, there were suffragists back in the early 1800s and it took a hundred years. You know, there, there, there's big event in Seneca Falls in what, 1848, but yep. you know, there's lots of examples in historical record of women suffragists arguing for women's rights in the early 1800s. So it's like a hundred years before you even got to um, women having the right to vote. And I think- But even that was just white women. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, and that brings up, there's an interplay between feminism and white women's experience in feminism and black women's experience in the suffragist movement, which, you know, we can talk about. And it just took so long for rights to be kind of incrementally afforded to other people. And I think when you look at, say, the fight for racial equality, you know, in, in 1967, the Supreme Court passed, decided Loving v. Virginia, which basically held that anti-miscegenation laws were um, unconstitutional. Well, that wasn't the first case. You know, the California Supreme Court had decided that issue in 1948. So almost 20 years earlier, the state of California had had, had a similar holding under its state constitution. And the legal fight leading up to the California decision, you know, goes back decades. And so you have this Supreme Court decision in 1967, but as we know, that didn't end racist discrimination or race-based discrimination. In fact, it wasn't until 1983 that a case was decided called Bob Jones University, where Bob Jones University had had rules against dating, uh, you know, interracial dating if, and interracial marriage if you were a student at Bob Jones. And they continued to enforce those rules. You know, it was a private university. And ultimately, the federal government decided if someone's going to maintain uh, race-based discriminatory policies, we're not going to give them tax-exempt status. And so that really is what came to a head in, in the Bob Jones case. Finally, in 1983, the Supreme Court said, yeah, stamping out racism is such an important governmental interest that it's okay for the federal government to deny tax-exempt status to discriminatory entities, even private universities. So, you know, you have this this long arc. And I think as we all know from the events of last year, certainly racism hasn't ended with the Bob Jones University case, you know? So these are long-term fights and, and we're gonna talk more and more about these. You know, you and I grew up, you know, pretty close in time, but do you remember, you know, we used to fight against Nazis. We used to fight, you know, and we, at least we knew our country wasn't perfect, but at least I felt like we were on the right path, you know, but the last four years leading, you know, through the Trump administration, this, that stuff was just under the surface. So, you know, I really hope that, you know, we can get back to a point where we can start pushing that stuff back down and start bending more towards that arc of equality for everybody. 
Yeah, and, and I think another thing that these arcs highlight is kind of the intersectionality issues as well. Because when you look, you know, often people will look at discrimination in, in kind of like one narrow sense, like, okay, discrimination against women and then discrimination on the basis of race or national origin, um, discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity. But when you look at how do those intersect, like what is a, a black trans woman What's the level of discrimination that she experiences and why it's important for members of all of these marginalized groups to really look out for each other? You know, I, I think that the, what the history teaches the importance of considering that intersectionality. Yeah. And I, you know, and that's, and that's one of the things that I've already looked at in my mental health counseling, you know, is how, how do we treat those people of color who are LGBTQ and especially those, I mean, especially those who are trans and the level of violence against them is just horrific. And we had a horrible transphobic attack here in Rochester last summer. Those communities need extra protection. You and I are fairly blessed that, you know, we pass very well, our voices pass very well. And I hate the term passing, but we move through society relatively unmolested as trans folks. But there are so many of our brothers, sisters, and non-binary pals who don't that, you know, it's it's unfortunate we really need to protect those people the most. And so these 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 things need to be discussed. They need to be brought to light and really focused on. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you. It kind of brings to mind the an MLA, M, Martin Luther King quote that I love. It's um, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And so, yep. you know, we need to be on the lookout for injustice because injustice against one group one day can be turned against another group another day and it often is well talking about turning groups turning against people yeah why don't we talk about kind of our first legal case for the podcast uh, uh you know well we've mentioned a few but we haven't gone in, 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 in depth i wanted to bring one up that um came out fairly recently it was it's a decision of the california court of appeals decided or published on January 22nd of this year. Um, so January 22nd, 2021, it's Murphy v. Twitter. And, you know, I think what's interesting about Murphy v. Twitter is at, at its heart, it's a case about the Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act of 1996, you know, which is, um, we'll talk more about what, what Section 230 is. It's a kind of an internet provision that applies to inter internet companies. But the facts in this case are about a self-described journalist who happens to be a TERF. And What's a TERF, Jamie? <laughs> so TERF stands for Trans Exclusionary Radical Feminist. It's a term, frankly, it's kind of a pejorative term that, you know, describes a certain group of feminists who claim that trans women aren't women. And, you know, I think they're definitely the minority they would label themselves as quote gender critical or something more vanilla sounding to make themselves not sound so hateful but these turfs reject the view that most people have have accepted that trans women are women trans men are men you know just treat them and respect them as such so let's talk a little bit about this case is that all right yeah, you you have like a page of notes on it, so I yeah I wouldn't want to do you the disservice of not respecting your 
well thought up notes here. Yeah, so Morphe v. Twitter. You know, one thing that's often interesting, and, and I hear this a lot from other um, other attorneys, is you can often read a, uh, a legal case from the backward, from the from the end. And so if you jump to the end of the legal case, the, the disposition of the case is, is kind of summarized. Often judges will say it right up front as well, and then they'll repeat it at the end. But this case... Essentially, a lower court, the um, trial court in California, had dismissed the case. They said Ms. Murphy didn't have a claim because her claims were barred by Section 230. The California Court of Appeals affirmed that judgment. So, And on top of it, they held that uh, defendants, Twitter in this um, instance, are were entitled to recover their costs on appeal. So this really was a slam dunk. Twitter wins this case. But let's talk a little bit about what, you know, prompted the case. I bet it has something to do with the turf. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, what, what led to this case? Why is there a lawsuit here? So Megan Murphy is a, a freelance journalist uh, from Canada. She, you know, at the time that this case took place or, 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 or the, when the events happened, which were mostly in 2018, uh, Murphy had about 25,000 followers on Twitter. On Twitter, She had even gotten the blue verification badge, you know, from Twitter as a verified identity. Ooh. And, you know, and, and her view, her arguments were always that trans women were not women. She frequently spoke out against accepting trans identities um, as legal or as valid in kind of legal and social um, settings. Around the beginning of 2018, a trans woman named Haley Heartless, that's actually kind of a pseudonym, uh, she self-identifies as transsexual professional dominatrix. So that's what, that's, that's Haley Heartless's identity. She's also is a transgender woman. Her name is Lisa Crute. This is all from the case. She'd been an activist supporting LGBTQ rights, feminist rights, sex positive viewpoints, arguing for positive sex worker and labor, and labor community issues. And in previously one thing she had done in 2016, there was this British Columbia Federation of Labor conference. Ms. Crute had helped the organization in a successful effort to, to prohibit this conference from funding entities that discriminated against trans people. And one of those was the Vancouver Rape, Rape Relief and Women's Shelter because this shelter was denying access to trans women who might very well experience the same kind of you know needs and issues with, with rape and violence as cisgender women. And so, you know, in an effort to get them to change, Lisa Crute, Ran a successful effort, kind of arguing against those policies. So, in response to that, January in January of 2018, Miss Murphy tweets, and I'll read this. And some of this is a little, frankly, very offensive. Some of her tweets. So I just want to mention that I'm, I would never misgender someone purposely, especially in in writing. I'm going to read some examples here where Ms. Murphy does misgender Ms. Crute, and I'm only doing it to point out the language that Ms. Murphy is using, okay? So I just want that to be very clear. I in no way condone use of some of these this language. So Murphy tweeted, for the record, this dominatrix 
was also one of those behind the push to get at BCFED, the, the conference, to boycott and defund Vancouver Rape Relief, Canada's longest standing rape crisis center. She said he is actively working to take away women's services and harm the fem feminist movement. So, you know, obviously that caused some is issues between Murphy and, and Lisa Crute. You know, Ms. Murphy specifically and repeatedly misgendering Ms. Crute, you know, basically when she was not just going to sit back and, and take those tweets sitting down, so to speak, she, she said, hey, you know, if you're going to engage in this kind of hate speech, I don't want you speaking in, in our communities. And so, you know, Ms. Crute organized and complained that Murphy is a well-documented, well-documented turf and who promotes that ideology. And so in response to that, Murphy tweeted again, Lisa Crute and other trans-identified male slash misogynist created a website in order to libel a local woke activist, women of color activist, and published a letter demanding she be removed from a panel scheduled as part of this conference. The organizers caved immediately. Well, of course, Miss Murphy is the person who was removed from the conference. You know, once again, she misgenders uh, Lisa Crute. And then later she published another tweet, basically going on saying the same kinds of thing, complaining against trans women. She says, these men don't like, you know, don't like it. You know, there's this kind of this repeated misgendering and refusal to treat trans people by their gender identity. I'm not going to go through, there's another half dozen tweets that go back and forth that are all recounted in, in, the, um, in, in the court case. So Twitter has a, hate, a hateful conduct policy. And, you know, eventually this was raised to Twitter as, look, you have this self-reported journalist misgendering trans people essentially consistently, all the time. And Twitter's hateful conduct policy, so in, tw in 2015, Twitter's hateful policy, hateful conduct policy said, hateful conduct, you may not promote violence against or directly attack or threaten other people on the basis of race, ethnicity, national origin, sexual orientation, gender, gender identity, religious affiliation, age, disability, or serious disease. We also did not allow accounts whose primary purpose is inciting harm toward others on the basis of these categories. So there's some back and forth, and Twitter did make some changes to its policy over, over time. Um, you know, today you can, if you search for Twitter hateful conduct policy, you'll get something very similar. It says, you may, you may not promote violence against or directly attack or threaten other people on the basis of race, ethnicity, national origin, caste, sexual orientation, gender, gender identity, religious affiliation, age, disability, or serious disease. Uh, we also do not allow accounts whose primary purpose is inciting harm toward others on the basis of these categories. It goes on, you can't use hateful imagery or hateful display names. You know, those are things that can get you banned. So all of this is in uh, Twitter's, you know, terms that you agree to when you use it. And it's kind of an interesting note. I, I It kind of caused me to think, I wonder what other 
internet platform views. You know, Facebook, Google, they all have very similar platforms um, to these. So anyway, August 30th, 2018, Murphy does three more tweets about, about Ms. Crute in which she misgenders her every time and, and misgenders trans women generally. And Twitter locked Murphy's account on the basis of its policy. Yay! Right, exactly. So Twitter, you know, as a as a company, decided, look, we're not we're not going to permit this kind of hate speech, and so they lock her account. They required Murphy to delete the account before she could regain access, and uh, so Murphy did. She deleted the tweet, and then she immediately retweeted. Hey, Twitter, I'm a journalist. I'm no longer allowed to report facts on your platform. You know, Twitter required her to delete that as well. A few weeks later, Murphy's account was locked again for more tweets. When after she said in a tweet, quote, men aren't women. How are trans women not men? Blah, blah, blah. You know, it's like more along this vein. You know, she gets her account locked. Then she tweets, you know, this is effing. She spelled it out, bullshit Twitter, blah, blah, blah. So we already got the explicit thing down. So yeah, exactly. Um, you know, four days later, Twitter deletes, locks her account again, requires her to delete the tweets again. She does. She resumes tweeting as she has been all along. And so on November 23rd of 2018, Twitter sends a letter to Murphy, an email, private email, um, saying her account is being permanently suspended. And, you know, once once again, it was for her misgendering another trans person. So, you know, that is kind of the factual basis. You have this throughout 2018, Miss Murphy continuing to misgender trans people, both, in, both individuals and the community in total. Twitter giving her multiple warnings about it, suspending her account, reinstating it, and finally just permanently suspending it uh, at the end. I have a couple of questions, Jamie. Yeah, go for it. So number one, so they're both Canadian, right? And we're, we've been talking about British Columbia. How does this end up in California state court? Ms. Murphy is, uh, is Canadian, but Twitter is in the state of California. So she brings suit against Twitter in Twitter's home state jurisdiction trying to force Twitter to change its practices. And so we've kind of set out the facts and, you know, so what law applies to this? Why, why did it come out the way it did? Well, there's a really important internet provision called Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. Section 230C1, which is captioned treatment of publisher or speakers, dates, uh, no provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. And then goes on as relevant here, the statute expressly preempts any state law claims uh, inconsistent with that provision by saying uh, no cause of action may be brought and no liability may be imposed under any state or local law that is inconsistent with this section, and that's in section 233. So you have what you have in section 230, you know, historically newspapers, for example, 
as publishers, you know, do have to worry about the information they publish. They can be, they can be sued for libel, for example, if they're not sufficiently diligent in, in what they publish. And in 1996, you know, Congress was grappling with how are we going to treat these companies providing internet services? And so there's a couple of terms within that two thirds. And one is interactive computer service. Well, interactive computer service kind of means you know, anything, any, any website eff effectively where you can go and, and post things. So today it would cover Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, anything where you can go and kind of interact with the computer with that service through postings and whatever. And so the providers, in this case, Twitty, Twitter, under Section 230, they're not going to be treated as publishers. And essentially, those internet service providers are not going to be held accountable for what individuals post on their platforms. So there's another important provision also, though. So on the one hand, Section 230 says they're not going to be held liable. So, you know, Twitter could not have been sued for what Miss Murphy posted and, and held liable for her posts. She's responsible for those tweets, not Twitter. You know, but Section 230 also, it's both kind of a shield and a sword, if you will. It lets, it lets Twitter take actions to restrict information, and, and those actions can't be challenged either. So it says, under civil liability, no provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be held liable on account of any action voluntarily taken in good faith to restrict access to or availability of material that the provider or user considers to be obscene, lewd, lascivious, filthy, excessively violent, harassing, or otherwise objectionable, whether or not such material is constantly prote constitutionally protected. So you don't have a First Amendment claim against Twitter. You know, this kind of goes to the structure of our government you know, your First Amendment rights prohibit the federal government and state governments also. We, we can, you know, talk about the federalism in, impacts at some point. But the First Amendment says that the government can't restrict your, your speech rights. Twitter's not held to that, to that standard. And in fact, Section 230, in Section 230, Congre Congress explicitly said that Twitter can take action to remove delete accounts, delete content, you know, that it, that it feels is harassing or object, objectionable. And, and that's what Twitter did here. And, and also there's kind of another layer of this, you know, where Congress specifically said that state laws, you know, states can't pass laws that would kind of negate the effect of this, um, of this provision. So, States can't say, oh, okay, we're going to allow that federal law, but we're still going to let our um, citizens sue for this same conduct. So, in fact, so the federal law says no cause of action can be brought and no liability may be imposed under any state or local law that is inconsistent with this section, this section 230. So those, those are the protections that Twitter was relying on to argue against uh, Miss Murphy's claims. So let me tell you, there are I'll, I'll tell you what the claims were. So Murphy, Murphy bought three main causes of action. One was a breach of contract, where she said that, you know, Twitter's contractual terms meant that it, it couldn't uh, suspend her account or make changes to its hateful conduct policy, 
you know, without some notice to her or, you know. Murphy made a promissory estoppel claim, which is basically that, you know, Twitter's promise not to make, to notify users, you know, within 30 days of making a change to its policies. And she's claiming they didn't follow that. And then she made a claim under the California's unfair competition law that, you know, it's unfair for Twitter to police her speech and, and delete her content or and suspend her account. Murphy was seeking, those were, those were the legal bases that she was claiming she could sue Twitter under. And what she was asking for was, you know, a, a cease and desist order against Twitter for what she called, you know, viewpoint discriminatory misgendering rule. You know, she was seeking to have her accounts restored and she was seeking to re remove terms from Twitter's terms of service and, and basically prevent Twitter from policing the content on its site. And Twitter's main argument was all of these are barred by Section 230. Twitter also made a First Amendment claim, you know, that its own First Amendment rights were, were being, would be infringed if it was forced to allow that kind of speech on, on its platform. Ultimately, the court never really got to the First Amendment argument because they found that Section 230, they found that they could dismiss Murphy's claims just based on Section 230. And this is something that courts often do. If they can find a statutory basis or some non-constitutional basis to invalidate an action or to resolve a dispute, they're going to solve it on kind of that lower level. And they don't really even need to get into the constitutional arguments. So that's basically what they, they did here. In discussing, you know, the various claims, what the court said was that, look, Section 230 was enacted for two basic policy reasons. You know, promoting the free exchange of information and ideas over the internet, you know, is, is point one. Congress was looking in 1996, you've got, you know, this new thing, the internet, and they didn't want to uh, restrict the development of the internet. And they also wanted to encourage voluntarily, voluntary monitoring of offensive or obscene material that, you know, that was another of, of Congress's actions. So they wanted to give computer services the right to, re to re you know, to decide what was, what would go on their platforms. You know, we've already talked about the language of Section 230, that Twitter can't be treated as a publisher or a speaker of the content on its services. And that was important. You know, one thing that the, you know, many people think that there are these magic words in law that, that if you just, if you just say it a different way, you're, you're going to, you're going to get through whatever the legal hurdles are. And honestly, there are some areas of law that, that where that may be the case, you know, the words you use do have meaning. I'm not arguing that that they don't. But here, what's important is the the court said just because you know Miss Murphy has framed this as an unfair competition issue or uh, a violation of contract, they were going to look at the substance of what was occurring. And if the result of her claims would be that it treated Twitter like a publisher or it deprived Twitter of the right to police the content on its service as provided by Section 230, then it's a violation of Section 230, no matter what you call it, you know? Yeah, so, I was just gonna say, there's so much in there. I mean, and we've heard the last president was complaining about Twitter and all this stuff and, you know, but there's a distinct, you're making the distinct difference between the government providing First Amendment and 
What's the responsibility of private organizations? You know, and it doesn't sound like there are any First Amendment, you know, guarantees that Twitter has to make. It's essentially that's true. You know, there's a very narrow doctrine in First Amendment jurisprudence that if the government were to empower a private entity to, to such a degree that essentially that private entity was enforcing governmental rights, there can be situations where you can hold a private entity responsible, but that's pretty narrow. The, the strongest presumption is that, you know, the First Amendment speaks about the relationship between the government and individuals. And so Twitter doing something doesn't infringe someone's First Amendment rights because they're a private entity. They're not the government. The kind of cases that you read about where a private entity is held to be a government actor from, from the standpoint of the First Amendment, there's some old cases where you had these factory towns, for example. You know, you have a factory in the middle of some, some rural state and the actual factory owns all the housing around the town and the, the factory itself, the company becomes the de, de facto government in that town. There's some old cases where they were effectively held to be government actors. You know, so you get some things like that. You get some cases with like private prisons where, you know, the government can't just contract out its responsibility for operating prisons and then allow private prisons to violate the Eighth Amendment about of, against cruel and unusual punishment. You know, ultimately the government as the entity that is trying the individuals is responsible for the treatment of prisoners. So there, there are some specific narrow uh, instances where a private entity can be held responsible, but that's by far the exception. And, and Twitter is not responsible in, in the First Amendment sense here. Yeah, no, and if we also look at what happened earlier this year with Parler and, you know, that website, that organization was deplatformed by Amazon because they were allowing hate speech, incitement of violence. So you're not, as a company or individual, you're still subject to market forces and public opinion. Oh, yeah, totally. You know, I always say everyone's got a First Amendment right to say whatever they want. And you know what, but they don't, no one has a First Amendment right to be agreed with or supported by the rest of society. And, you know, I, and I think this, this case, the reason it's important to our community is that it says it's okay for Twitter to have a hateful conduct policy. And it's okay for Twitter to say, we're not going to allow hate speech against the trans community on our platform. And likewise, you know, as a result of this case, it just gives support to other companies, Facebook, Google, any other big internet service provider or small internet, not necessarily an ISP in, in the, like your, your local cable company, but anyone providing a, a service over the internet does have authority under section 2230 to police that. And they're not gonna be held uh, liable in this way when they when they do that. I think that's important, at least over the past four years during the Trump administration, it really has been private industry who's been, you know, promoting LGBT rights and the acceptance of LGBT rights in our in our culture. You know, I think for for many years I government led in that area. 
And under the Trump administration, he tried to roll back and his administration actively sought to roll back freedoms for the LGBT community. Private industry, nonetheless, wanting to hire good people and retain good people and get the benefit of diverse viewpoints, really pretty much rejected, you know, the Trump policies, you know, much to the frustration of Trump. I mean, there were, there were, Trump made attempts to require or prohibit, Trump made attempts to prohibit um, government contractors from doing diversity training, and they got a lot of pushback um, on that. And so this is just one other area where the law says companies can police this kind of content and they're not going to be held liable when someone like Miss Murphy comes along and tries to sue them. In the, in the future, you know, this case will probably get cited in, in other California cases, probably bought, bought because a lot of, you know, interact, internet companies are in the, the Bay Area, for example. So I'm sure this case will be cited as, as a way to dismiss future uh, turf claims like Miss Murphy's. Well, and, you know, and other platforms are, each platform is different in how they enforce these. I will say Twitter's not perfect, but I think they're better than Facebook and some other platforms. And, you know, Parler suffered the consequences for their lack of moderation. So they only have themselves to blame. Going back to the mental health side, it's it's nice knowing that a company like Twitter, you know, they're not perfect, but it makes me feel a little bit better. And I'm sure it makes other trans people feel a little bit better knowing that they can go on there and have some level of protection for misgendering, dead naming or whatever that is. So, you know, these things do matter to us, not only from a legal perspective, but again, this ties back into, you know, mental health and outcomes. And, you know, I work for a company called Starbucks. You may have heard of it. They, they sell coffee and other sweet drinks. Starbucks. No, what are you talking about? What are you talking is, about? Is that a Rochester company yeah, or something? Yeah, Ro Rochester via Seattle. Yeah. Um, but, you know, but one of the reasons I chose to go work there, you know, as part of my career change while I'm going to school is because, you know, they have trans-affirming health care. They offer, you know, surgical options that many other companies don't offer and that, you know, fortunately I've been able to take advantage of. And so... These policies companies are seeing help them retract or attract and hold on to good people. So, you know, I think when companies realize they can make money from us, we can be profitable for them. That's going to push equality as well as the government doing it, too. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. And you know what's interesting? I've read um, a number of, of, of studies where young people these days are actively seeking out companies that have better diversity programs and more diverse workforces and support for uh, diversity um, across the board, you know? And so I think as companies try and hire, you know, young people coming out of college these days, it kind of it kind of highlights an adage that, you know, I think everyone should remember when you go for an interview with a company, it's a two-way street. Yeah, they're interviewing the end of the company is interviewing the individual to see if they're going to, you know, work well in their company and, you know, meet the educational requirements and and the like. But individuals are also interviewing the company, you know, kind of for the same thing to find out is this a place I want to work? And and I I think it, I applaud the fact that that young people are asking tough questions about uh, diversity policies, support for trans inclusion, support for racial justice. You know, that's important to uh, people coming out of college. And 
Well, in, to, to many people these days, but for the young workforce, for young people joining the workforce for the first time, I love it that they're asking those questions. Well, this also plays into, you know, what we're looking forward to in episode two, that, you know, we're going to talk about young people and the way they identify. So, you know, Amy, we've been we've been talking about this for a while. And I, you know, I think it's a good decision. I think it's interesting, kind of has a trans context to it, even though trans issues are not the key point of you know, section 230. But I just want to add one little thing, you know, you know, a court doesn't really isn't buying what you're selling, when they kind of make take a little shot at you in, in a decision. And I think this was kind of funny. So Murphy had requested that the court take judicial notice of a couple of a Canadian case and a couple of a couple of articles, you know, and Judicial notice just is asking the court to recognize some evidence that, you know, might not have been introduced some other way. Maybe it's uh, something that you think will be persuasive to the court. So anyway, the court basic, basically declined. And here's what the court said. They said, the legal ruling from a Canadian tribunal rejecting discrimination complaints filed by Jessica Y is irrelevant to the resolution of this appeal. Whether those claims had merit is immaterial in determining whether Twitter is entitled to immunity under Section 230 or whether Murphy has stated a claim for relief. We take judicial notice, however, that the opinion refer refers to one of the individuals Murphy tweeted about, Jessica Y, as a, quote, transgender woman, period. And I just think that was a great quote by the court because here you have Miss Murphy who is misgendering every trans person she ever tweets about. And, you know, there was ample evidence of that included in the court cases. And when Miss Murphy asked the court to take notice of this, you know, this Canadian case that actually held against a trans person, you know, the court declined to take notice because that Canadian case isn't based on Section 230, doesn't have anything to do with the legal issues at issue here. But at least in that Canadian case, you know, the Canadian Tribunal, as most U.S. courts have, I've found in reading, still respects the gender identity of transgender people, you know, so. Well, and from a legal standpoint, how would a Canadian ruling apply to Section 230? Under yeah. U that's, that's specifically a U.S. law for U.S.-based companies that are Twitter and Facebook are aggregators of our material. So how, there's no, yeah, there's no application to it. There's, um yeah, absolutely, not in this case. So, you know, occasionally courts will take notice of, of foreign legal developments, um, maybe when discussing policies and the rationale for a policy and whether certain policies are reasonable and by looking to what other countries have done, you might, you know, occasionally a court will say, look, you know, countries around the world are all adopting similar policies, it's reasonable for the U.S. to do so as well. But none of those foreign cases, they're, they're not, they don't hold precedential um, value to the U.S. At most, they're persuasive authority, you know. And so when we talk about precedent, you know, if the Supreme Court comes out with a case, then all the federal courts have to follow that case. If you're in the Ninth Circuit, say out in California, you have to follow the cases of the Supreme Court, but also the Ninth Circuit cases that never go up to the Supreme Court. Those are precedential on you 
as if you're a, if you're a district court judge, for example, or a trial court judge, you have to follow those those higher cases. If you're a California state court, you've got to follow the um, the California Supreme Court cases. You know, are are, are binding on the uh, California state. But often courts will look to other jurisdictions. So California might be looking at an issue. They might say, oh well. Here's some cases from Massachusetts and Illinois and Florida and Texas and you know where other states that have decided these issues a certain way and certainly where you have a lot of cases going in the same direction that becomes more persuasive and then you know likewise sometimes courts will look to foreign courts in this case they it, like you said it really wasn't applicable but the court got in a little dig on Ms Murphy anyway so well should we wrap this up yeah, I think we should. You know, this has been great. I'm, I'm so glad we're doing this. I think there really is a good story for us to tell here. And hopefully our listeners will find this to be uh, informative and helpful. Yep, I think so too. So, well, Jamie, it's been fun this morning as we've broached into this afternoon. Yeah, it sure has. So uh, look for more next month. All right. Until then, see you next time. Bye. Bye-bye.